And here we go. Hey. Another I Bought a Farm, episode six. Thanks, Colton. Very nice. Smooth. Six. Uh, so, again, last one, if you watch episode five, we had the uh, Roll First lenders on. And we're going to kind of keep with that same track. And and one of the reasons is, you know, number one, I think lending is probably one of the most important things you're going to deal with when you're buying a piece of property. And also is because um, not every lender is the same. Um, you know, you can lend with a local bank. You can lend with somebody like Rural First. Or today, uh, we've got Gwen Waddell uh, on to from AgChoice. Farm Credit. Uh, yep. And, uh, you know, we, we actually met Gwen a few weeks ago for the first time, had a really good discussion. Um, I have used ag choice personally, um, to close on my Ohio farm. And so they've got some really cool benefits, um, as a, uh, credit company, credit union, um, as being part of a membership there to where, you know, you, you pay an interest rate just like everybody would, but then you essentially get a dividend check, um, at the end of the year, which, uh, you can use for anything. Um, and that, if you look at it, it actually buy, would buy your interest rate down fairly low. Um, and, and based on today is yes. Cinco de Mayo. Um, yesterday, the if you haven't heard, so May 4th, the feds raised the uh, interest rate a half a point, which was the largest uh, rate hike in 22 years. 22 years. Largest single rate, rate hike in 22 years. Mm. And what does that mean? Because people get confused, you know, when we talk about prime or the Fed rate and stuff, what it means is um, in November, December for a 30 year fixed mortgage, you may have been paying 3.5, 3.6%. Currently you'd be paying about 5.6% um, with this new hike. So dramatic effects on, on interest rate. And, um, you know, even though 5% sounds high, it's not, you know, if you look at what your returns would be from uh, other investments, you know, so, but that said, you want to be able to pay, you know, the lowest interest rate possible because that's obviously not going towards your premium to buy down equity. Um, so all of this is intermingled together. Um, but lenders are obviously one of the most important things that you will deal with as a buyer, uh, for a piece of land, um, whether it's a farm or a hunting property, uh, or even your own primary residence and land. Um, you got to have the right lender and you want to work with the right lender. So um, I think what we'll get in today with Gwen, and we touched on it um, briefly with the Rural First group, is um, Ag Choice is also a group that keeps um, their uh, loans in their portfolio in-house. Um, whereas a lot of your banks will take normal mortgages to the secondary mortgage market to sell them off. Um, these these groups are keeping them in house, which, may, which makes it a couple things. Number one, a little bit better to talk with them uh, to negotiate rates, to negotiate down payments, um, as well as if you're looking to buy multiple farms, which I am, to leverage that equity of those in house portfolio items. Um, if you have your mortgage sold uh, on a secondary mortgage market, it makes it a lot more difficult to try to then leverage that equity back in. Um, without doing either a refinance or a home equity line of credit or something like that. So um, we're going to we're gonna dive into some of the stuff that maybe we didn't talk about last week as much, um, as well as talk about how AgChoice uh, is a little different than some of the other lenders um, that we've, we've talked to or, or you might be familiar with if you're listening to this in your area. 
There you go. Nailed it. All right. Let's bring Gwen in. Hey, Gwen. Hi. How are you? All doing well. Appreciate you joining Jared and I this morning uh, as we were talking about the old Pennsylvania weather, up and down, cloudy, rainy, cold, you know. Well, if you don't like, wait five minutes. It'll change. That's what they say, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and I thought it was important, um, and maybe it's a good way to start this, Gwen, is you, know, you, yeah. had, you had kind of talked about this weather setting you back um, from being able to plant. So maybe give the listeners a little background on just you personally, because um, I think that it, what's unique about it is, you know, yes, you're a lender in this space, but you also live the lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's true of many employees here at Ag Choice. Um, we are a financial institution. We're a lender that does loans and that kind of stuff. But a lot of our staff has experience with ag. Um, and at the end of the day, most of us grew up on farms like myself. Uh, I grew up on a small dairy farm in northwestern PA, about an hour south of Erie. And my husband's family, they actually milk about 1,200 cows here in Crawford County as well. So not only do we work with farmers, but a lot of us live the lifestyle somehow. Um, and if you ask him, I have my horses at home, but they they don't make us any money, but it still lends to that part-time farmer lifestyle. Um, so I grew up on a small farm and I did graduate from Cornell University with a degree in animal science. So unlike a lot of bankers, my background wasn't necessarily in finance or accounting or business. Um, I actually did graduate with an animal science degree. Um, and I started with Ag Choice uh, about just over five years ago in the fall of uh, 2016. And like I said, I live up here in Crawford County with uh, my husband and a bunch of farm animals on our lifestyle farms. So that's just the quick snapshot of my background for you guys. Well, and I think that's awesome, Gwen, because, you know, one of the things that we talked about when we met a few weeks ago is, you know, and I think this is really kind of at the core importance of Ag Choice is the relationships that you're able to build um, with your customers, um, which I think a lot of people, you know, no offense, don't want to deal with banks and lending, right? It, it almost becomes a nightmare atmosphere for them the moment they have to deal with a bank to ask for money. And, you know, and, and Jared and I have talked about that even together to where, you know, there are certain cases where, you know, we bring up a, a piece of property that we want to buy and, you know, we're financially secure to do it and put down and the bank won't won't lend against it. Um, and, and you kind of get frustrated in the situation. It's like, well, well, why? Like, I'm clearly a qualified buyer. I have the money to do this. I can repay the loan. Um, it's kind of uncomfortable to uh, just revealing yep. your financial status to, sure. you know, if it's somebody you're dealing with for the first time or somebody that like, uh, clearly is not that interested in your pursuit of land ownership. You know, they're just like, yeah, you know, here's your pre-qualification form. Show me all your finances. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of, not a lot of assistance. And, and mm -hmm. there are quite a few no's that come from that as, as well. Just, or, or, you know, maybe from a lack of understanding of, um, yep. of how we approach that. So. Yeah. And unfortunately saying no is part of the job and it's definitely not the fun part, but that's really what makes farm credit different in general. Um, and farm credit is nationwide. So wherever you go, there is a farm credit. They just might have a little bit different of a name. Um, Cause here in Pennsylvania, we are ag choice farm credit. Um, if you go up into New York or over into Ohio, you'll run into a couple different names, but just like you guys were saying, that's exactly why uh, farm credit was founded. Um, the farm credit system has actually been in place since the 1900s, and it was established because commercial lenders at the time considered agriculture to be a very, very large risk. 
Um, so there really weren't that many people that wanted to play in the agricultural space and interest rates were high, long-term financing for farmers and ranchers was hard to find. So basically uh, Theodore Roosevelt appointed a commission to address these problems and the farm credit system emerged from that. Mm -hmm. um, and so since then we've evolved from just working with full-time farmers that make their whole living from agricultural income to working with part-time farmers like myself that just want to have the lifestyle, have some horses at home, have some acreage, have some timber ground, um, and to rural home borrowers who just want to live in the country and have a property with a couple acres. So just like you guys were saying, we take that relationship very seriously. Um, our motto here is knowing you makes the difference. And oftentimes with our full-time farmers and some of our part-time farmers, we have multi-generational relationships. So we become more of an advisor at some to some extent than just that banker that you're calling on just when you need need money for a purchase or that kind of thing. So it's definitely a different feel than your traditional banks. Yeah. I've always thought it was so bizarre <clears throat> that like, you know, we, we talk about banks not realizing the value of, of recreational or, or, or raw and vacant land. It's like, what do you mean? Like that's, that was first. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's the original. Yeah. It's like, it's, it was all raw land at one point, you know, and then it kind of got, you know, I assume the, the, the banking system in that entire industry is kind of structured around, uh, you know, more, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it, residential, corporate, uh, developed areas, you know, and so now it's regaining traction back mm -hmm. out into, into these tracks that we're looking at. But I always thought it was weird. That's like, how do we not have a system for this? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think it's all about risk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to say, Glenn. I mean, if you think about when, you know, the farm credit system started, you know, there were a lot of local banks that were, you know, taking or basically doing mortgages with your rural farmers and stuff. And, you know, ultimately, most of those farmers would default on a loan. Mm -hmm. Bank would take over the property. And that's how you ended up with all these kind of small fragmented pieces of land. Um, Isn't that crazy? Across the landscape. It almost seems like a, a part of our culture. It's like you hear about all these old farmers losing their, their farms. Yeah. You know, I remember all these old movies. Like it was always, that was always the the setting. It's like, you know, yep. ranchers getting ready to lose his, his ranch. And Well, it's because they're working with a bank that probably set them up with, a, with terms that there was no way they were ever going to be able to repay, knowing that they would then eventually take the land over, over and either put it at the auction or, you know, subdivide it and sell it back out. Um, and, and I think that goes back to the point with like what Gwen was saying with the, the Ag Choice side is that, you know, you form a relationship with a customer knowing that you kind of are that customer in turn and how critical that is. It probably makes a huge comfort level with the people that you're dealing with on an everyday basis. Yeah, exactly. And setting up people for long-term success is something, one of my favorite sayings personally when I'm sitting here, and I've taken this from, from some of my managers and mentors over the past few years, is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. <laughs> um, and that's something I take pretty seriously when I'm working with, especially, for example, a young customer that wants to buy a vacant land property to build a home on in the future. Um, a lot of times, maybe they can do that small, you know, fifty to $100,000 vacant land purchase, but a larger home construction might be out of the realm of what we see as doable at the time. Mm -hmm. And we do make sure we advise people on that kind of stuff for the future, too, because I don't want to stick you with a vacant land loan that you're never going to be able to build on in the future if that's your what your primary purpose for purchasing it is. Right. Um, so we take those relationships extremely seriously. But 
on the full-time ag side, it just comes down to the um, agricultural industry and how cyclical prices are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one year, everything can be awesome and you can be making bank. The next year you might make nothing. Um, I think you guys had a forester on that was talking about timber, which is a very good example of that. Um, timber prices fluctuate very regularly. And if you're not aware of those trends and knowing what's going on and can set appropriate terms for the client and the customer, that's what leads to those negative situations that we try to avoid and defaulting on loans and those kind of things. Yeah. So it, we take it very seriously. It'd be cool if we could kind of, you know, start there. If you Are you able to yeah. give us maybe some loose parameters? Um, a lot of what we've talked about on this podcast is like identifying elements of value on, on tracts of land, whether mm -hmm. it's timber or ability to crop lease. Um, but I think, you know, Jeremy and I's knowledge both kind of ends, you know, and picks up with, uh, you know, the position that you're in, in terms of knowing how you guys might consider that as a lending and a management of risk, I guess, yeah. because ultimately, yeah. even though you want to help this rural landowner, you guys are still a financial institution who has to take into consideration risk. Correct. And to start with, um, there's two really basic general general eligibility standards we look for, especially for more of the lifestyle borrowers. So the clients that are looking for a large acre timber track, primarily for recreation, maybe they'll do a couple cuttings and get some income off of it, or they're looking for, you know, a camp with some land or something like that. They are not full-time farmers, but they want to have that recreational piece. Real, so real quick, those, Glenn, oh, in Pennsylvania, can you take a guess at roughly what percentage of your guys's business is that type of a of a borrower? So overall across Pennsylvania, it is a it's a it's a fairly low percentage of the whole association growth because when you think about it, a lot of our business and our repeat business and our larger loans do tend to be for our full-time ag guys okay. because they're coming back to build facilities like chicken barns, dairy barns, um, large tractor purchases, that kind of stuff. So overall in Pennsylvania, the full-time ag makes up a majority of our work. However, the region I work in, in this Western PA region, which is like Erie County, Crawford County, Mercer, Venango, Warren County, these counties have really seen a surge away from more of that full-time ag and into those lifestyle farmers. And when I say lifestyle farmers, that really can be somebody um, who has a full-time W-2 job, like as a teacher, but wants to raise some beef cows on the side. So they might sell 10 to 15 head of beef cow, grass-fed beef over the summer when they have time. So that demographic is becoming really huge in my region that I cover personally, but it is growing across the state and across the country as well as more people want to, we call it uh, the rural living push. Um, I'm sure you guys have noticed it too. Yep. There's a lot less people that are buying land in cities and in towns, and they're really looking to buy in the country. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really started to grow that demographic for us. And I guess Gwen, in, in that case, um, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, people buying a vacant land tract and then looking to build, you know, in the last even 24 months, have you seen that build aspect dwindle a little bit with the cost of like lumber prices and, and everything that's going on in the economy? There's a lot of sticker shock yeah. um, is what I would call it when people have their building plans from their architect and they go to go to the builder and the prices, you know, double or triple what right. they were thinking. Um, there's definitely a lot of sticker shock out there, but at the same time, 
interest rates are at historical lows. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an interesting time to play in that market because you might be buying, spending more on the house for your materials, mm -hmm. but your interest rate is going to be lower versus um, I we, we were talking a little bit before the show here and you mentioned the Fed increasing rates again. Yeah. Um, do you know we are in an increasing, increasing rate environment? Um, and so like for Ag Choice, for example, our rates do not directly mirror the Fed. But the, what the Fed does is a very good indication of what our rates will do. Gotcha. Um, just because the Fed increases by a quarter or half or whatever it decides to increase by, that doesn't mean our rates are going to increase by the same percentage. But it does usually mean that our rates are going to increase. Right, on the same um, trend so, lines. Yeah, exactly, the trend lines. So with following that, you know, in six months or a year, we might find ourselves in a flip-flop situation, you know, where... Um, cost of materials is back down, but interest rates are higher. Right. So you're going to end up, you know, netting about the same cost for the house, whether you build it with higher materials or finance it with higher interest rates. So, but that all comes back to the uh, client and the borrower's capability to afford the loan as well, because that brings up the appraisal issue and that kind of stuff when you're mm -hmm. paying twice as much per square foot to build a home where in the same area it would sell for half the appraisal is not really going to work out as well because they are driven by comparable sales in the market. So yep. that's the biggest issue I've been seeing with constructions right now with the cost is yep. just them not, you're outpacing your market. Um, you know, you're building a $400 square foot home when every square, when every other home in the area of the same size sells for 200. Well, and that's a no huge, come in and pay it. yeah. And that's yeah. a huge thing that, you know, whether you're talking about a home or, you know, Jared and I, at least on the recreational ground side have kind of, not seen it firsthand, but through, you know, colleagues of ours to where, you know, the market demand is is pushing the price of a recreational piece of timber ground up so high that the appraised value, because again, you guys have to protect yourselves in the long haul, is not catching up to that. And Whoa. so there's a gap. And also sometimes comps aren't worth a damn because it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we do a lot in Allegheny County and it's like, <clears throat> you know, find me a 10 acre track uh that sold you yeah, know especially in the, city in the city limits within the past five years you know it's there aren't many of them mm -hmm. um you know and if there are a lot of times they're all over the board and so you know jeremy and I even find ourselves asking you know how, how do you value a piece of property you know in this specific situation um mm -hmm. and maybe yeah. you can help us out with that yeah we can talk a little bit about that and some considerations that ag choice has seen with this because obviously like i was saying the market has been basically at record highs since late 2020, right. um, which is very good for a lot of reasons, but it also has some potential negative side effects as well. Um, and again, the reasons for this, there's a bunch of them, but they include, like I was saying, the low interest rate environment. It's a good time to buy. People can work remotely long term, mm -hmm. so they're no longer set to living in those cities or living close to their workplace for a commute. They can come back out to these rural areas that they historically could not live in. Um, real estate is generally viewed as a stable investment as well, especially as we're in some uncertain times with the stock market investments, that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's also just a lot of people that are trying to get ahead of the market and buy now um, due to interest rates increasing. Right. So there's lots of reasons that we're seeing this increase in the market, but basically what this means is it does increase the likelihood that an appraisal might come in below the sale price. Um, and the reason behind this is the main thing that especially Ag Choice as lenders and our internal appraisal team relies on is a sales comparison approach. 
Um, and basically this approach tends to use sales that occur in the past 12 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. And the key kind of like Jared was saying is that some of those higher markets might not have hit those comparable sales yet, especially when you're talking about a very unique property that doesn't sell every day. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons other lenders can have issues with these specialty types of properties, the recreational, the large acreage, commercial properties, because they don't carry the databases to find these sales. Um, and that becomes pretty critical when we're talking about, you know, in a hundred acre piece when everything else that sells is around under 10. So yeah. they're not quite reflected in those values. And as you were kind of saying, it's it's more for the bank to protect their investment too at the end of the day, mm -hmm. because we need a way to value that property. Um, obviously market value, willing buyer, willing seller, that's traditionally accepted as the definition. However, I, as a lender who's writing a 15-year or 20-year mortgage on these properties, we need to prove that that market is going to last for another 15 to 20 years. Right, um, And that's where it comes down to really those appraisals. They are indicative of market value in a way mm -hmm. based on those past sales, but the market's ever-changing just like anything. Yeah. So it's really a balance of us being comfortable from a lending standpoint that we can get that investment back um, as well as just supporting the value. You have to support it somehow. And the widely accepted way to do that is historical comparative sales. So Gwen, let's, let's talk about, I guess, a little of a situation there. Let's say that somebody yeah. is, is, you know, buying a piece of property. Um, I know we talked about it. Traditional is, is usually 20% down, but that could vary, um, you know, based on the situation and, and working relationship with that client. But you know, let's say that um, that loan to value basically comes up short, right? And that there's a gap there. Um, is it basically, is it, I guess, first off, is the only way to repair that gap is the buyer potentially bringing more money to the table or are there other options? So there are some other options, especially here at AgChoice. Um, and one thing with this climate, most of us know that we live and we work in our local areas. So a lot of us have a good pulse on our local markets and some per acre values and that kind of stuff. So if something comes to us and it strikes us as overly high, a lot of us are already trying to think about what are we going to do? Yep. And obviously the easiest option is for the borrower to be prepared to put in more cash. Um, like you were saying, for these recreational purchases, we're usually comfortable with 20% down. Um, as you get into some more unique properties or larger purchases, sometimes we look for more like 25%. Um, and if we start talking about home sites and things that are less than 10 acres, we can even even sometimes do as low as 15. So the down payment really ends up being driven a little bit by overall property and overall use. Mm -hmm. So the easiest way to make up a difference in an appraisal is to have a client that has the ability to put in more cash if necessary. But obviously for every client that does not work. So one of the other ways that I like to do it, and we do here at AgChoice quite a bit, is to use another property as collateral. So if a client does have a, another recreational tract that's free and clear with no liens, or they have a house that's free and clear, or they just have a property that does not have any liens against it or any mortgages with other banks, we could potentially use that property and place a mortgage against both their purchase property and their existing property to lend up to a higher percentage of the value. Gotcha. Yep. So that's 
that's the easiest. That's the second way I usually do it. But the big thing we like to do is really just to be proactive in these conversations and have those up front to have that plan B to figure out. So it doesn't put us the day before closing um, and the appraisal comes in too low and then we're out of luck. Yeah. Um, so what happens when if, uh, there is a lien against the other property that you're, you know, trying to, so if I have equity in something that I finance through a local bank or something like that, is that, are you going to make the recommendation that we refinance that and pull that into your portfolio? And that's going to make it, you know, forward, uh, easier to, to work with. Yeah, most times, yes, because when we start talking about doing long-term loans, you know, anything over 10 years, we do have requirements where we have to be in what we call certified first lien position on our collateral. Mm -hmm. So that means I cannot sit, we cannot sit as ag choice second behind another lender on that additional collateral. So depending on where the interest rate is on that other loan, how much is left on it, just the specifics of that situation, there are a lot of times we will recommend possibly refinancing it to get the other purchase done. Um, The scenarios where we are able to be second to other lenders are pretty slim, um, but that really comes down to the relationship. And if it's a longer term client that we've worked with a lot and we know more about their financials, We've done stuff like that too. Yeah. And, and probably just like, you know, any situation where you're looking to refinance, there's probably good times to do that and, and, and not so great times. Yeah, exactly. And it's all interest rate driven. And that's something else that's been going on in the market a lot. If you talk to a lot of uh, closing companies, attorneys, yeah. the uh, refinance market has been at an all time high and that has finally started to slow down. So there's going to be a lot of situations probably coming up in the next several years where that refinance is not financially advantageous just yep. because rates have increased so much since you refinanced it last. But another cool feature of Ag Choice, while we're on the subject of refinances that I've been taking advantage of over the last few years with the low markets, we actually have the ability to go in and modify existing notes mm. for a flat $500 cost and take advantage of lower markets um, if they happen if they end up being lower than when you originally wrote the loan instead of doing a full refinance. So that's one of the things too, that makes us a little bit different as a in-house portfolio lender that holds all that risk. We have some of those, those tools available to us that really benefit our clients. If interest rate markets decrease. Awesome. Um, so we discussed bringing more cash to the table. Um, you know, if, if the, the terms aren't matching up, uh, also leaning against a, another property and potentially refinance, yep. refinancing that to bring it into, you know, mm-hmm. the ag choice portfolio, which is something that I've talked about doing with, with my current place. Cause I yep. have one loan, uh, with ag choice and then I've got another that's outside and, and really mine is forward thinking of wanting to leverage the equity of those farms to continue to build that portfolio. Yep. Um, and and we talked to Glenn was kind of clarifying for us. The re the main reason that they need to pull that into their portfolio is that they need to be, uh, you know, the first lien holder on a property. So somebody else can't have first dibs, you know, if Mm -hmm. we default on payments, ag choice needs to be the one to be able to capitalize on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which makes perfect sense. Yeah. It comes, well, it comes down to risk again too. And this is one of the other main reason lenders, lenders get a little bit more nervous and terms are often less favorable for vacant land, camp properties, higher acreage, something that's not a primary residence. Because if you quit paying a loan, 
which one are you going to quit paying first? You're going to quit paying your recreational land or your second home versus your primary residence. So that's the reason even across the lending industry outside of ag choice, that primary residences often have super favorable terms, but these other properties do not. Um, And one more, there's a couple more things for the appraisal subject. Um, The other thing I've done is we, we can do gifts. So, you know, if you have a nice, nice uncle or, you know, family member that can gift you some cash, we can use a gift letter that says it's a gift not to be repaid then we don't have to take it into account in our financial analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, or in some situations, we can have it come from another loan as like a 401k loan that some uh, employers offer that usually are very favorable, a personal loan, which I usually try not to recommend depending on interest rates, um, as long as the debt to income and the overall analysis support it. So there are a couple other ways to sneak in there as well if we're a little bit short for cash. But the other appraisal consideration that comes up a lot, there's two of them, and it really is territory-based depending on where you work. Here at Ag Choice, our appraisals typically do not include values on oil, gas, and mineral rights. And one of the main reasons behind that is one day they can be worth a ton if a company is in and buying and paying for them. The next day they might not be worth anything if, you know, environmental regulations change and you can't get you can't get those minerals out they're not going to be worth as much. Same with royalties. You might be getting a lot now, but what happens if that dries up? They're not worth as much. So our appraisals do not usually account for any value on those. That makes sense. Um, Yeah. And the other is timber. Timber is the other hot topic because obviously when you guys are out looking at properties and pricing properties and you're selling properties, a lot of times sellers take into account that timber value when they want a sale price on their property. And just like I said earlier, ag products are cyclical. So one day you can get a timber cruise that's going to tell you that timber is worth $50,000, but two years later, it might be worth 20 if price is 10. So our appraisals in our general lifestyle borrower, our recreational divisions, those appraisals do not necessarily specifically account for a marketable timber value. They appraise the land with a per acre value that compares it to other similar tracks. So they'll compare it to some land that has some timber value on it. They won't compare it to a clear cut track that's worth, you know, half, Um, but they don't necessarily say the land is worth this plus this in marketable timber. Right. And oftentimes, even if we do value marketable timber, the value ends up being a hybrid of the two. Um, and with the marketable timber, the only time we typically go in and value it is if we are actually working in our forestry division with our full-time timber guys, um, or if we know there is a cut planned in the next year or so. so, then sometimes we can do some timber stuff, but in the recreational, the primary, the secondary residences, the large acreage for just hunting, that kind of stuff, those ones, we typically shy away from doing those kind of things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you mentioned the, those two things are able to be, I guess, considered in the appraisal is the right way to say that. So like if, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a borrower and I want to buy a, a million dollar piece of property, you know, my appraisal yep. comes in at, uh, let's call it 750,000. Uh, and I'm looking at that, you know, maybe I've got some forestry experience or I've, you know, I've had a cruise yep. done and they're telling me that there's enough to, to, to close the difference. And you say, Hey, I'm willing to harvest that timber you know, within whatever the first year or, uh, you know, however that would work. 
Um, is, yep. is that something you guys are willing to entertain? You say, okay, yep, I see the value of the timber. We've sent our own timber appraiser out there and, and we agree with you. We'll, we'll give you that loan under those terms. Exactly. And those are typically set up different than your land purchase. At the end of the day, the land purchase, the base land loan is usually set up on a little bit longer of a term. If it's somebody that's buying it to keep it for recreation and just doing select cuts. Sure. When you start talking about the full-time timber market, where it's people that buy and sell properties just to harvest timber and then resell, that gets into a whole nother ballgame of financing. But for your average recreational guy that, like you said, sees it and sees the value, for those, they typically end up setting the land loan on a set term. And then we might do a smaller loan for a portion of the timber proceeds set up on, you know, a year of payments or something like that to be repaid within a short period of time from the timber harvest. Um, but that does mean we have to place, there's two different ways we can take liens. One lien is a mortgage at the courthouse, which is standardly known in the industry. The other is more like, it's called a UCC, mm -hmm. and it's basically a lien against a fixture or something like that, or a tractor or something that can be easily removed from a property. And in this case, timber falls into that ball game. Gotcha. So we actually will place a specific lien against the timber. And then we have to control some of the proceeds from the cuts to secure our collateral position. So yes, it is doable, but for your average recreational buyer, we typically don't get into that, but those are some of the considerations that we point out if an appraisal comes in low, yep. you know, because clients often get up, get a little upset if the appraisal comes in lower than their sale price. And that's one of the things to point out is, you know, hey, it doesn't include a specific tim marketable timber value and we did not value OGMs. Yep. Um, and like I said, that's just standard because of the volatility in those markets. Yeah. That makes sense. I, you know, I think one thing, you know, if, if anyone listening to this isn't, let's call it a seasoned buyer, right? Meaning they've got other properties in their portfolio than just their primary residence. You know, one of the things that I think that they have the most advantage to use, Gwen, but are often hesitant to do is a home equity line of credit on their primary. Um, and it's because, you know, typically that is the one investment. It's a huge investment, but it's the one investment that you don't want to screw up, right? I mean, it, it is the roof over your head. Um, but I think where, where some of the issues come in is and that- their variable rate. Right, correct. Which it, in this market is scary. It, yeah, because it's trending upwards. Um, but I think what, what people start to look at or forget to look at is the fact that that equity that you have in that house is, you know, you've paid for that. You've paid that down. You've, you've continued to work to have ownership- of that house free and clear, um, you know, it's something that, you know, most people probably don't use and likely, you know, should use in the case if they're looking for a secondary pro uh, property. Yep. We do have people that use it. Um, but the other consideration too, and I, full disclaimer, I am not an accountant. Um, I'm, I'm not well-versed on tax laws and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you are more of an investor that buys and sells a lot of properties, I think there's some tax limitations on what you can deduct with home equity loans versus actual investment property loans um, in your taxes. So yep. that is one discouraging factor that has kept people from doing that mm -hmm. um, just because of those. But I have had people that have come in with a home equity line for a down payment or something like that. Um, they are with the market, again, they're very popular because rates are so low. Um, mm -hmm. But it comes back to what I was saying about risk. At that point, you're putting the roof over your head, your primary residence at risk for your secondary purchase, which again, that's why even at Ag Choice for our part-time farmer demographic, 
rates are usually lower if it is going to be a primary residence or you're pledging your primary residence as collateral with the certified first lien. Got it. Um, so it all comes down to risk. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I was going to ask about um, uh, price or, or rate fluctuations in regards to those mm -hmm. two industries that we mentioned. So, so timber uh, and, and oil and gas. Um, I know we hear a lot more about, you know, giant swings in oil and gas industry, you know, either it, you know, we're getting a $1,500 check a month or it's done. It's totally off. I'm getting hundred bucks every two, two months. Um, whereas timber, uh, at least in our lifetime seems to have been more consistent. You know, there, there's a longer, uh, I assume heritage of within that industry and, and it's there. The timber is there. It's growing no matter if there's an industry there or not. Um, just, just curious, like what kind of rate swings you've seen in those two spaces? It's so the thing about timber is it's a longer trend, right? Trend line, right? Like you're saying, we have much more historical data to say, okay, prices are down, but they're going to come back up. It's forecasted, everything like that. The oil and gas industry has been so volatile just because, you know, you hear about it all the time with regulations. What can you do? What can't you do? And it's a relatively newer concept um, versus timber harvesting. It's been going on, you know, forever. Yeah. Um, so it's not really necessarily about, um, the exact swings in it. It's just about the stability of the investment. And right now, especially personally, I view timber as a much more stable investment than an oil and gas lease. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, it's always, always been that way. Yeah, yeah. there is fluctuation. It's a, it's a very reliable yeah. resource. We've always built stuff out of woods. There's other ways to power things, you know, water, yep. solar, yep. you know. Well, but the oil and coal, gas. Oil, is, natural gas. And, and that's it. I mean, in our area, Southwest PA, you know, there was a boom a decade ago that was just, you know, it was unreal. The, there, people had money coming out of their ears, you know, to where now most of these wells are capped. They're, they're not even active anymore. Right. You know, and so it's such a fluctuation on that. Whereas timber does fluctuate, you know, we've had down and now we're at a kind of a, uh, you know, not a record high, but we're in a really you know, prime market for it. And it will ebb and flow here. But if you look at that tread line, it probably is pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. It's more predictable. Yeah, That's really what it comes down to. I mean, as predictable as you can be with any commodity, I mean, it's, it's similar timber, similar, similar to a lot of our other commodities like grain, mm -hmm. dairy, all those prices have their own nuances to them. And that's where Ag Choice Farm Credit really helps out with those full-time farmers and your people that deal with those commodities because we have we have some specialized teams within the organization that are we have a forest products team that is specifically knowledge, very knowledgeable with those trends and with those fluctuations in timber. We have a dairy team that's very focused on the fluctuations in dairy. So within Ag Choice, we do have some very good specializations to fully understand those markets and get a better idea of what is happening and be experts in that financing field. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the things I think that's kind of been unique in in like the different sections or different verticals of of purchases is and it, it it's partly because we don't we have some in this area, but it's not like the central part of the state or even the north central part of the state is the tillable ground. And you know, there's there's places in central Pennsylvania that are selling at twenty to twenty five thousand dollars an acre for tillable ground. Um, and it's almost hard to comprehend that, you know, unless like I I picture like Iowa and, you know, Illinois and these like real fertile Midwestern grounds. But, you know, in, in a lot of states, this tillable ground is such a, a high commodity commodity item because it, it just there isn't a lot of it. Right. You know, it's it's a sliver of this state. And yeah, we have tillable ground in southwest PA, but it's not near to the fertile levels of what it is in the central part of the state. 
Yeah. And they're not making any more of it. I mean, that's why I think a lot of just your standard buyers are a little bit surprised that tillable ground ends up being worth more than uh, wooded ground or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it just really comes down to that. Your farmers that need the ground because they're not making any more of it, they will pay a premium for that tillable ground. And we definitely see that. Um, A very unique example, especially Mm -hmm. in my territory, is Erie. The Erie County area around Lake Erie has a lot of vineyards. Um, a lot of specialized vineyard ground with grapes and some specialized orchards, that land goes really high as Hmm. well. Um, And it's just because it is so specialized and so catered to that, that if it's already established, people are willing to pay a premium for that. Um, So yeah, when you get into, and that's the big thing about a choice too, versus a traditional bank, we understand those nuances and know that not all vacant ground is created equal. You know, sure. some banks will look at vacant ground as vacant ground, but we can really say the difference between a vineyard and what they're selling for timber ground, you know, tillable yep. ground, wooded ground, just across the board and a home site. Cause a home site on two acres with a well and a septic is going to appraise a lot higher per acre than a larger property. Yep. So it really just comes down to those nuances and knowing the difference between vacant land types. Yeah, Gwen, and I know we kind of danced all around this a little bit, but you know, for a lot of people who haven't purchased a second piece of ground, and let's say they just have a primary residence, standard home, standard bank, you know, they're used to that mortgage being sold on the secondary mortgage market. Whereas with you guys in Ag Choice, you guys are literally keeping most of these in-house in a portfolio, which gives you call it some flexibility. I guess is the best way to describe it. Correct. Yeah. So right now, um, Ag Choice is primarily a portfolio lender. Um, there's not mortgages we do that are sold on the secondary mortgage market. Five years ago, that was different. We did have some secondary mortgage market activity. Um, and chances are we're probably going to get a little back into it here in the future, too. But for now, a majority of what we do is in-house portfolio. And that gives us the flexibility on these land types. And also it gives us some flexibility on underwriting that you would not have if you're sending it on a secondary mortgage market path. Um, And the reason behind that is the best way to think about secondary mortgage market is I as a loan officer would originate the loan, but then I would package it up in a nice little box with a bow and send that out to somebody else who would actually be the investor that takes the risk on that money. So versus our in-house portfolio loans where Ag Choice Farm Credit is actually taking the risk on that money that was lent. So that's why when you start talking about your standard mortgage rates, that's why sometimes our, our rates are a little bit higher than some of those secondary mortgage market rates with traditional banks because they're getting rid of it. They're giving the risk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. With portfolio loans, we are taking that risk, which leads to a little bit higher interest, but it brings all the benefits we've talked about so far. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I and the other thing that I didn't know until so I worked with your counterpart Kara on on my property in Ohio. Um, and you know what was interesting with that is, you know, I forget. I, I think I locked it in at like five percent. But as being, I guess, a member of Ag Choice Farm Credit, there's actually um, what a dividend is that what it's called at the end of the year that that kind of comes from being a member of of Farm Credit. Yeah. So to back up and talk a little bit about how we are structured, Ag Choice Farm Credit is not like a traditional bank. We don't do checking accounts, saving savings accounts, that kind of stuff. We do loans. This is what we do. We lend for property, farms, equipment, basically a lot of farm needs. And part of that benefit for our 
agricultural customers. So for our full-time farmers, for our people that are purchasing agricultural investments like large timber properties, um, anything that you might consider more commercial in nature, um, those ones go into what we call our patronage program and our patronage pool. And those rates tend to be a little bit higher stated on the notes but we actually refund back a percentage of the interest paid in a dividend every April that is called patronage. And at the end of the day, if you look at our 10-year rates or our 10-year payback rates, it usually reduces the rate by one and a half to 2% or paying back about 30%, with some years being a lot higher. Uh, this year, I think we refunded almost 59% of the interest paid. Wow. Um, so this year's checks were very significant for our full-time ag borrowers or our borrowers that have agricultural type loans. However, the flip side of that is that rate is one and a half to 2% higher than some of our competitors in the marketplace. So a few years ago, we actually went to a switch where if it's somebody buying a smaller acreage property just for recreation, if it's somebody buying a primary residence on, you know, under 50 acres or something that's not, there's not a lot of farming activity, it's more residential consumer in nature. Those ones, we actually give the benefit of patronage upfront with a little bit lower fully fixed rate, you know? So you're saying your rate's 5%. One of our consumer guys might have a three and a half percent, but they're not getting that payback. Mm -hmm. So they're designed to kind of equal out to the same interest rate, but through a different mechanism. And there's benefits to both. Um, some years, the patronage dividend could be very high, like 59%. And that might reduce your rate a little bit lower than our home guys. However, our home guys, their rate is fully fixed and guaranteed for the life of the loan versus your patronage dividend where the payout percentage is not guaranteed. Right, so there's pros and cons to each situation, um, but it all really is driven by what the primary purpose of purchasing the ground is. Mm -hmm. If you're purchasing ground for farming where you're going to make ag income off the property, if it's a timber property that has potential for timber cuttings, um, if it's more commercial, it goes more agricultural. If it's residential where you're buying it to live there as a primary residence for family recreation, um, you're not really looking at it as more of that investment. You're looking at it for more personal use. Those come a little bit more into what we call our consumer division with the lower rates up front. So it's all about just where the loan goes and what happens. But patronage is definitely a really cool, really cool uh, aspect for our commercial guys. But if you don't have patronage, it's okay too. It's yeah. just all driven by what your purpose for purchasing the property is. Well, and I think that that goes back to kind of that relationship that you guys are building with your customers and understanding what their business is and what their primary needs are. And and I would assume that, you know, it, and it makes sense to me as as potentially an investor in secondary um, land that like I want to work with someone like an Ag Choice that ultimately I can continue to you know build my personal portfolio with you know and knowing that I have flexibility with the equity and those properties and the collateral because you guys are keeping those in-house. Yeah, exactly. It gives us all that flexibility we've talked about and the ability to do, use additional properties, collateral, pool equity, just do those things traditional banks don't, don't really handle well. Um, it also gives us the opportunity to handle multiple deeds, multiple parcels, all those kind of things that you see on some of these larger purchases as well. And it is possible to have both types of loans with us. You know, for example, if 
you're a full-time farmer that has bought a farm, you make a lot of farm income, but you go to build a house. If you want us to finance the house, there's a good chance if it's in your personal name, that will become a residential non-patronage loan versus a patronage loan. So we do have a lot of customers that actually have both loan types, just depending on what the purpose of their original loan was. Okay. That makes sense. What, um, I I guess one of the things to kind of look at there, Gwen, in terms of, you know, if I'm coming in and I'm looking at, you know, really trying to find the right lender for my current set of properties and that, that future kind of build of that portfolio, as I'm sure if it's a recreational investor or, you know, a lot of these agricultural guys are continuing to add on to, again, like you said, they're not making any more tillable ground. They want to be able to take advantage of that. Um, you know, our, and, and again, we don't want to go cash broke at the end of the day. You know, is it something that you guys are just commonly looking at when you're able to control those those portfolio items to say, hey, listen, like you've got equity in, in these two properties, you know, it, almost in a, uh, I guess, like where Jared and I are is we're, we're always actively looking to buy. There's nothing property specific that I'm saying, I want to buy that one yet. But we always want to have the ability to be able to pull the trigger, especially in this market, quickly. Most people are probably in that. But yeah, mo- yeah. <laughs> I you know what you I mean? tell us. I yeah. don't know if it's most, but a lot of people are probably like, "Oh, I'm looking for a place." You know, yeah. not not yeah. necessarily like, "Hey, this is my yeah, neighbor." I just selling. want to be ready. You know, not at a yeah. moment's notice. I know there's a process, Gwen, but but I want to have somebody behind me and a lender that says, "Hey." Jeremy, you basically anything from X to X, you know, if you find it and you want to buy it, like this, have it all laid yeah. out so I understand how the process is going to work and what I'm going to be responsible for, whether it's down payment or no down payment or, you know, just making mortgage payments. Yeah, exactly. And so with a lot of the guys, like I was saying, we have multi-general relationships with farms. There's a lot of people we have worked with for multiple transactions and one of the keys for some of them, and especially if you think to the timber industry specifically, where they need to be ready to buy these properties when they come available, right? right. So they can harvest timber. Yes. So with a lot of those types, if we get into those more full-time commercial ag relationships or investor relationships where they are buying very commonly, we have mechanisms in place to do guideline approvals where basically, you know, you're approved for up to this amount. And then you can get the sales agreement in place, then we'll get the financing in place. Um, or we can even do for our large guys that are doing it a lot, we do some lines of credit and stuff like that. I guess that's what I was gonna say, Gwen. Like oh um, yeah. I don't know if it is a line of credit or or almost like that, to where I'm I'm at a at a moment's notice essentially, like, hey, this came on the market, I'm ready, I need to make an offer and I need to lock it up quick. You know, I know that the lenders got my back in that situation. Yep. And there are mechanisms in place to do this. So it comes down to the same kind of thing. So I work with a lot of buyers too, that might be able to buy a property out of cash. You know, they're investors, they have a significant cash cash and savings. However, with how low markets are, it might make sense to finance it for them. Yeah. So I've done cases. Yeah, exactly. I've done cases where people have come out and bought the property out of cash And then we've stepped in and financed it later on. However, in those situations, if you do that for the quick close and for the cash, there's a couple risks that we want to be aware of. The first one is the appraisal, because obviously you're going to need collateral for our loan. Mm -hmm. So unless you have significant other equity we can rely on or something like that, we're relying on that appraisal. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't have one done, 
we just talked about how sometimes they're not always equal to sale price. So it could create a little bit of a risk there and you might not be able to get as much money back as you were hoping. The other risk is title insurance. So a lot of times when you're looking for a quick close, you won't necessarily go through an attorney or settlement company and do the full searches on the property. Right. So if you close and then you come to us for to finance it, and there's an issue with the property, such as it was in an estate and an heir didn't sign off, or for whatever reason, you do not have full, clear title insured claim on that property, that could create an issue. And unfortunately, at that point, it's yours. The seller isn't going to want to fix it or deal with it at that point. So there are mechanisms in place to do that. Um, however, it's something that is done very cautiously because of some of those back end considerations. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think that's the thing that, you know, uh, there's probably a lot of people listening to this and saying, man, you know, Jeremy and Jared and Gwen, I'm, I'm just trying to buy my first property. And, and yep. maybe that's something that they plan to hold on for the remainder of their life. You know, that it's, they want one hunting property. It's close to their primary residence and they they want to pay it off and like own it free and clear. There's a lot of other people in the market that are, you know, wanting to enjoy that investment, me particular for the next five to seven years. But in my mind, it's a investment to eventually sell, make money and then do it over again. Um, yep. And so I think that again, it, you know, I guess the key hit home point is, you know, try to find that lender. And in this case, for me, it's kind of been ag choice of um, who, who you know, you can trust and work with and who understands you to say, okay, I know that Jeremy and Jared are going to want to continue to buy property and build their portfolio. And they also don't want to be cash poor. They want to be able to leverage the equity that they have in these other properties. Yeah. And like you're saying, that comes down to the relationship and sitting down with the customer and knowing their goals. Yep. Um, because at the end of the day, I think your standard home buyers that don't buy and sell property a lot, the two things that come up a lot when we're thinking about financing are credit score. Mm -hmm. What's your credit score and what's your debt to income? What's your repayment ability? Those are kind of the two major factors in most loan in most traditional loan approvals. You don't really hear about some of the other considerations such as cash reserves or equity and net worth. And those are kind of the difference between somebody that's doing a one-off buy and you guys and the more investor types that are really looking for investments. Um, we want to be a little bit more focused on that equity net worth number and those cash reserves versus just the debt to income, the repayment, the credit score. Yeah. So it really comes down to knowing you and knowing what your goals are. Because if your plan is to turn around and sell a property in five to seven years, is putting it on a 20 or 24 year term going to be the best option when you're not building equity? Right. And fast. So really knowing the goals and knowing what the customer wants to do helps to tailor which of those prod products work best for them. Yeah. Yeah. So important to have a a, a good lender who knows what they're doing and, and to have a relationship with them. Cause there's so, so much of this stuff is, you know, we've got a loose grasp on it, but it's, but it's over our heads, you know? And so to be able to connect with you, Gwen, and, you know, Kara is, is the local agent here and uh, make a relationship and, and to be educated on how we should be approaching these things is like so valuable, not for, just for us, but to be able to pass on to our clients. For sure. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Well, and it's stuff that, you know, uh, frankly, I didn't even, until I started looking and even when I bought my first, um, you know, kind of recreational property, I still, for whatever reason, didn't even know it was an option. You know, mm -hmm. nobody told me it was an option, you know, so I, I worked with a local bank. It was a pain in the butt. You know, fortunately it had a, a really nice structure on it. Um, so that the local bank would lend against it. 
Um, but you know, I had several properties that I brought up about raw land and, and, you know, no discussion basically like now, you know, wouldn't even talk to me about it, yeah. you know, and it was discouraging at first. Cause <clears throat> I'm like, so how, how the hell do people do that? They pay in straight cash for this stuff. Like I'm not going to be in that situation or I'm going to be very limited in what I can buy. Yeah. It's oh man, it seems just so situational. Cause we have come across them, you know, we, we've, you know, we, there was another one in Indiana County that, um, mm-hmm. You know, from time to time, they come up and they're like, yeah, no, we do a lot of vacant land loans. Seems to just have to, a lot to do with, like, <clears throat> the leadership at the bank, you know, and yep. their experience in that in that space. And like you said, it, it's risk-based. So if the bank or the lending institution is run by people who understand, are familiar with those types of, yeah, comfortable of, with of land and loans, you know, it can happen. But a large majority, like you said, especially in... Um, you know, more, more populated areas, you know, downtown Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. I don't, PNC is not loaning against 50 acres no. with, with no house on it. <clears throat> so, so Gwen, I, I think, um, maybe kind of as we wrap this up, you know, I, at least in my experience, you know, I'm a Pennsylvania resident. I work with Kara here locally to buy an Ohio farm. Um, and I think that's critical for a lot of people to understand because, you know, many of us, if we are buying a secondary property, it may not be in state. So, Essentially, what what are those kind of regulations or terms that we've got to work with from an ag choice side in terms of can we buy a property out of state? And is it just working with as long as like ag choice is present in my state, I can work with them to buy in another state? Yeah. So the best way to think about it is it really comes down to where your primary base of operations is. So if you primarily live in Pennsylvania and you happen to be buying some farm ground over in Ohio, we will work with the farm credit in Ohio to gain their approval, basically, to write the loan. Um, But, you know, if you're buying a farm in Montana and you plan on moving to Montana, working with Ag Choice is probably not the best bet. You might want to work with the farm credit out there. So it really does become a little bit situationally based. Um, as far as like, where are you going to live primarily? Where is your base of farm operations? Um, and at the end of the day, the farm credit system is nationwide. So we do work with each other on concurrences and agreements to work in other states. If, if it's a situation like that, where you're located here, you live here and you're buying somewhere else, because the other thing it comes down to is some nuances with state to state as far as the certified first lien paperwork, the attorney work, the appraisals. I can't tell you much about that in Ohio even um, versus Pennsylvania, which I'm pretty well versed. So some of it comes down to making sure you have the best representation as well to understand the process, the property, and make sure you're getting what you think you're getting. Um, so at the end of the day, if you have a relationship with Ag Choice and you have a lot of properties financed with us already, chances are it's something we can do in another state. If it's going to be your first purchase ever, your first recreational purchase, and it's further out west than like Ohio, New York, or some of our bordering states, then it might be a better situation to work with the farm credit out there. Um, but it really just becomes situationally based. Yeah. Perfect. So Gwen, where, uh, where will people start this process? I guess website is the best way. Yeah, so uh, agchoice.com is our website, and it is usually the best place to start with. Um, Before we wrap up, I'll give a quick overview for people that are just, you know, new to the process, don't really buy land much, and they're looking for that, really that first investment property or maybe their only investment property. The best place to start is to reach out to us and connect with a loan officer. And then whether you have a specific property in mind yet or you're kind of shopping around in the market, 
we can work through what we call a pre-qualification, where we review your credit score, your basic financials, just to kind of give you an idea of, hey, yes, I think this is approvable. It's not a final loan approval, but it's a very strong certainty that we can do that financing because, like I said, main things, we look for credit scores over 700 with a clean history, um, and then down payments of typically 20% for a lot of those purchases, sometimes 15 to 25, depending on some of the nuances of the property. Um, but at the end of the day, those are the two basic things. So connect with the loan officer, work on that pre-qualification, and that allows us to send a letter out to the client that says, hey, I've talked to Ag Choice. They've pre-qualified me for purchase of this amount. So then when they come to you guys and want to buy the property, you know that they're a more qualified applicant and they have a source for the funds. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it just moves into your standard uh, loan application, loan approval, all those kind of things. And that loan pre-qualification does not require a property in mind, right? So that's something that if I'm just, Correct. I'm interested in buying property at some point and I just want to make sure that I have my ducks in order. Um, yep. I, I would get in touch with a loan officer and start a pre-qualification form at any time. Exactly. It's good to have an idea of your price range in mind. Sure. Um, when you come to me and just want to know ex how much can I borrow maximum? Red flag. That's not as good if you come to me. Yeah. It's, <laughs> don't say do that. It, yeah. yeah. Do we like to do it? Because we don't, I don't. We don't, another uh, theory we have, especially with the multi-generational relationships we have is lending someone their last dollar can be tough. Yeah. Um, especially if it's a young couple that doesn't even have a primary residence yet and they're looking for recreational land or vacant land, we don't necessarily want to max them out on debt to income or something like that if they're going to want to buy a house in a couple years. So it's good to have an idea of what either what you're comfortable with for a monthly payment for a loan or a purchase price before you come to us for that pre-qualification. Um, you don't necessarily need a specific property, but having a good base idea really helps us tailor that to you as an applicant versus just coming to us and saying, hey, how yeah. much can I borrow? Yeah. It helps us a little well, bit. Well, I think it goes back to like, don't outpunt your coverage, right? No, yep. no, ultimately, even if you can get afford, let's say the down payment, you still gotta afford the mortgage every month afterwards. Um, yep, or yeah. vice versa. Yeah, exactly. I was just laughing to myself over here thinking that there, there probably is a demographic of people that uh, may value their recreational land more than their primary residence. Yeah, I'm one of them. I yeah. may be one of them. I'm like, I have a house. I don't, I don't need a house. Yeah. I, I got a hunt somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Living in a tent in the winter in Pennsylvania. There you That's go. right. I have a truck. Yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, Gwen, listen, we appreciate you joining us on the About a Farm podcast. Um, anybody listening, uh, if you're in what, North, Mead, Northern Meadville, PA? right? Crawford Meadville? County area. Yeah, I'm based out of Meadville, Northwest PA, Erie, Crawford, Warren, Mercer, Venango, those areas. Um, and even if you're not and you're in Pennsylvania, um, I can share my contact information. So I can always put you in contact with the right person to help you, even if you're in a different county or area of the state. There you go and go check out agchoice.com and get started. I think it's a good place to even see if you're able to, to purchase a property. It's a great place to start. So, all right, Gwen, well, we appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Gwen. Well, it was great. Um, good to have, uh, first of all, you know, we met Gwen, what, three weeks ago or something, two, three weeks ago mm -hmm. um, at our Whitetail Properties State meeting. Um, Gwen and Kara, who's coming down here to the office later today, um, and is our local agent, um, 
you know, just came in and talked to us about ag choice and the opportunities. And, and I had been familiar with them. In fact, the, our broker in the state introduced me to Kara and then that's how I bought my property in Ohio and super smooth process. Um, yeah, super, just was a really nice experience with a lender who like didn't question why I was buying this 130 <coughs> acres for hunting and it had timber. Like they just, they just knew, you know, and it appraised coincidentally, my, my appraised, um, 20 or 30 grand over my sale price. Mm. Um, so I was like, man, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> easy, easy, cre easy peasy. Yeah. I think what's so great about, um, you know, this process is, you know, or, or maybe what people don't realize is, is possible. Is it like, you know, your loan officers want to get to know you. Like they want to, yeah. it's their job. The to, right ones want to get to know you. Right. There's right. other ones who you're just a bag of numbers. Yeah. A hundred percent. But so like, it's, it, it's it's a nice change of pace if you've dealt much with bankers to be able to reach out to somebody like farm credit mm -hmm. um you know the royal first girls seem really nice as well and there's you know there's a handful of local banks that are doing these types of, yeah. of loans as well as is, is reach out and just just establish a relationship with these people let them know who you are let them know what your intentions are um like so many things in life it's just relationship based yeah and these guys especially because their loans are, are portfolios they mm -hmm. keep them in-house they really have the ability to like look at you as a person and say hey you know jared i, I know i'm going to get my money back out of this or, or jeremy you know i see what you're doing here yep. in terms of, of growth we agree with uh with your way yeah, of going about strategy, this and, yeah. and we you know we're happy to do business with you well and that's what and again you know i'm 38 so i bought my first uh, farm in 2019. So it was what, three years ago. So it was 35, right. when I bought my first, farm. I had no idea that that was even like, you know, prior to buying that place, I had several that I brought up and they were like, yeah, we wouldn't lend against this before. And at that part, the market wasn't crazy to where you had to put an offer on it that day or you were going to lose it. Um, you know, but then it was like all of a sudden it, I, you know, the more I look at it, it's like, oh, you know, I didn't know that there was a difference between if this place had my loan or this place in order to use that equity to leverage to buy another place, you know? And, and again, just like most people, when I bought my first place, I didn't even think about ever being able to buy a second place. Now understanding kind of where the stock markets are and where my investments are and everything, it's like, oh no, I, I want to keep investing in this now. But what I don't want to do is continue to have to put 20 or plus percent cash down every time I buy a property. Cause eventually you run out of cash. Well, interesting to hear her talking about the potential for a line of credit against your assets, essentially, essentially a home line of credit, uh, but against the assets that you have under a farm credit portfolio. Mm -hmm. Correct. You know, that's how you start to build buying power and momentum against your assets. Uh, and frankly, that's probably where a lot of your cash buyers are coming from is they have a lot of they're just assets in a portfolio that they're leveraging and, you know, their lender knows what they're doing. And mm -hmm. so they, they approve it. Yeah. And then they're buying that and they're probably then refinancing it into a traditional mortgage afterwards. That'd be yeah. my guess. Um, and paying cool. that back off. Yeah. It's very cool, man. You can start to see how somebody could, could build a business mm -hmm. around investment properties and, and having those under a holdings company and, mm -hmm. and how you would fuel that with cash flow. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different things. Uh, there's one, you know, I, I know Dan Perez talked about it, um, you know, and I'm just starting into it, but you know, I've, I've formed a relationship with Northwestern mutual as kind of a financial advisor for me, mainly cause I'm not a financial advisor, you know, I'm looking for outside help, you know, and, and, obviously they do a lot of paper investments and they're going to advise me on some of these real estate investments. But the one thing that, you know, I wasn't kind of aware of, and you know, you hear good and bad things about it. 
um, is, you know, uh, whole life insurance, right? So you can buy, most of us probably have term life insurance. I do. Um, but a whole life insurance policy obviously costs you more, but essentially there's actually a cash value, cash value. That, as opposed that goes, to a face value. Correct. And then eventually, right. It's, it t- still takes years, but you can take a loan out against your own life insurance policy and use that loan to continue to purchase other real estate assets and stuff. You and I need to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I figured something out. Oh, the cool. other day. We'll, we'll disclose it and maybe in the future. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, you've got those opportunities. There, there's, put it this way, you know, you, you hear from um, people like Amanda and Emily from Rural First. You hear from Gwen from Ag Choice. Um, you, you hear from guys like, uh, you know, even Seth. There are ways to buy land if you want to buy land. Um, if you want it bad enough, you, you can do it. And, you know, you may have to find other additional sources of income, uh, to be able to pay for that. But that's that's reality. Most people with one income source aren't just buying properties out the wazoo. Yeah, so so important, I think, to explore options too. I think even Gwen or Kara, who we're going to talk to later today, w- would tell you, um, you know, hey, we are a lender and, mm-hmm. and we, you know, obviously they feel confident to lend against these types of scenarios. But I'm telling you fr- from a buyer standpoint, talk to talk to different people yeah. you know get get three or four of these guys be open about the fact that you know it's not like you have to hide the fact like i'm yeah y- you as a buyer should be should looking be for what's, what's best for you and uh you know you'll meet some good people along the way and you'll figure out some people that you know maybe you don't want to work with and, and i'll tell you it saved me dude when when margie and i were getting ready to buy um the business that we own mm-hmm. um i was i was going through two or three different lenders uh pnc west banco and first national mm-hmm. And, uh, like over the course of several months, I mean, this is, it's a process to figure out, yep. especially I was, I don't know, 24, 26 at the mm-hmm. time. Like, um, you know, it's our first big purchase. And so it's, it's a big deal for these. It's a lot of risk, yep. you know, looking at somebody like me. And, um, so over, over kind of time, PNC fell off first, you know, we figured mm-hmm. out, Hey, that just, um, it was a, a small business loan. Well, it was very corporate based and, very and they're corporate. very restrictive in how they do things. Yep. yep. Um, and so eventually that loan became not an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're getting down kind of to the wire here. I have first national and West Banco, uh, seeming like both could work. Both are telling me it's mm-hmm. going to happen this and yep. that. And, uh, eventually we hit a wall with a, it was a second round of essentially inspections. So it was mm-hmm. kind of like a commercial, um, there were some tanks on the property that were buried and, uh, cause it was an old gas station. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. And, and so at that point, and we're close to, yeah, you know, needing closing to close on this thing at yeah. this point, first nationals like, yep, so, uh, sorry, you know, can't do can't it. Can't do it. And so, yeah. And had you having, had no options, I'd have been screwed, man. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it, it is, I mean, it's the one thing I will say, um, because it's easy to get caught up in the numbers is don't necessarily bite into the lowest interest rate offer. Um, just because that bank has the lowest interest rate still doesn't mean that's going to be in the best interest for you long term. You know, it, Gwen openly says that they may have a higher interest rate of that, but based on the patronage, dividend check, and the fact that they're keeping it internally in a portfolio, there are a lot more advantages there than it hitting a secondary market and you never being able to leverage that thing. I think. Um I mean, dude, like so many service-based things, uh, you know, a lot of people are just shopping for, for value. They want the cheapest interest rate. Um, and, and that's fine, you know, but understand that there, there's some difficulties that are going to come with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At some point, you know, I think 
we're probably there. You probably want to start to consider more more quality over value. So I think we're we're willing to pay a little bit more mm-hmm. for a loan officer, uh, you know, like Glenn or like Kara that understands and appreciates our situation specifically uh, and is well equipped uh, to deal with the entire yep. process and to kind of help us throughout that. You're you're most likely not going to get that kind of assistance from somebody who just offers the cheapest loan rate. Yep, hundred percent. So. Well, hope everybody enjoyed this episode of I Bought a Farm with Gwen Waddell. And the lean against your timber. Yeah, exactly. Potentially. Potentially. It's an option. Well, and, and you know, Royal First was very open that they won't do that. I know that Gwen and AgChoice will, but they've also been very transparent that if they lean a UCC against that timber, they will tell you when the cuts happen. Yep. I mean, it, it they will happen. There's Unless you can pay around fine. it. I mean, if you want to go out and walk a track and you're like, hey, you know, there's, a, there's some harvestable tulip poplar here and, mm-hmm. what, you know, Hundred-year-old white, you know, white oaks. Yep. I walked a property yesterday that had that. Yep. Um, and and really, you're purchasing that either for a home site or for for hunting utility or whatever it is. Um, just understand the elements of value. Work with a good real estate agent who can help 100%. you um, identify those, and ultimately, uh, the lender will pull pull the yeah, the plug on it yep. in, a, in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. <laughs> cool. Well, great episode number six. I bought a farm. Uh, keep tuning in, man. Every two weeks, we'll be having these things cranking. I think um, from here, transparently, we don't have anybody lined up for the next episode. <laughs> but I think I think we should talk a little bit about um, getting into some management projects. Um, okay. You know, w- once we've, uh, you know, the buying process is moving, mm. or you know, you're kind of new onto a piece of property. I- I'd love to touch on you know some of the the, the initial items to say, okay, I bought this track of land. Yeah. What's next? Now what? Well, and it's good timing because one of the first things I'm going to be trying to do here in the next few weeks is get in contact with my local forester in Ohio, have them come out and do a timber cruise in terms of value, also a forest management plan so that I can get on the uh, CAUV for tax breaks. And then is, okay, am I going to harvest some timber uh, or do I start to look at the equip route? you know, or, or any of these federal uh, conservation funding programs to where I get a one-time payment on, on a bunch of acres. I don't know. I'm completely naive to it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's all great stuff. I'd like to also maybe shed light on uh, some resources that are available from some different uh, state departments in terms of, you know, drills that can be borrowed. Um, You know, there's all kinds of ways, you know, in those programs that you mentioned are a great way to save money to then turn around and reinvest it into your property. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that's your investment. So do it. it. All right. We'll see you next time on I Bought a Farm. Later. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the I Bought a Farm podcast, make sure you check it out every other Thursday night on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and any other place that you might find your favorite podcast.